Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Lunar New Year kicks off this weekend for a week-long celebration. And for the first time in nearly three years, mainland China is opening its borders to Hong Kong, allowing loved ones to celebrate together. This move comes following the Chinese government's pivot last month, announcing they will be rolling back their COVID-0 policies, despite rising COVID numbers. So, as the world's second-largest economy begins to reopen, how optimistic should investors be? Fidelity Investment Director Catherine Young, who is based in Hong Kong but joins us today from London, speaks with host Pamela Ritchie to discuss what the year of the rabbit could have in store for investors and the markets. Also today, Catherine looks at valuations, interest rates impact on the value versus growth debate for Chinese stocks, Chinese travel, both domestic and international, and the reopening trade. This includes reflecting on the current status of COVID in China, with Catherine also noting the differences between urban and rural settings, where access to aid is different. This podcast was recorded on January 13th, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy, or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Great to see you. Welcome. Hi, Pamela. How are you? Very well, thank you. You've been traveling leading up to um, this time of year in China. Um, things are opening up. Yes, and I've been in the Nordics this week alongside our head of stewardship team and currently in London Then doing Benelux next week. And you know, the key question really is, is the rally we have seen in Chinese equities maintainable or sustainable? And what's really driving it? Is it just a result of, of the pivot that you mentioned in terms of the zero COVID policy? So the reopening story, we, we all now know what it's meant for other countries. And of course, reopening can be a bumpy ride. It can happen in different ways. If it's not just a reopening trade, what, what else could it be? So we were expecting a reopening. Now, the timing of the reopening was somewhat of a surprise, just in terms of how even in Hong Kong, we saw tweaks to the COVID policy and still seeing tweaks, whereas with the Chinese government, they announced it and it almost went from one extreme to another, despite a lot of the messaging throughout the past couple of years or few years regarding how important it was to maintain this level of zero COVID. So they've even categorized the virus from A to B and reopened the borders. But as you mentioned, all reopenings are slightly different. Nothing can happen just all in one go. So for example, the day of reopening, Sunday the 8th of, of January, we saw 250 outbound and inbound international flights. That same day in 2019, so pre-COVID, there were two and a half thousand flights. So that's a drop of around 90%. So, you know, in terms of applying for a passport, only 10% of China has a, a passport in terms of the population, in terms of even getting travel documents and, and visas ready to even cross into Hong Kong. You know, it's, it's not just going to be all done in one short period. But the recovery, the reopening names, even the stocks have done very well. And it's probably the beginning 
of a, a longer term recovery. So interesting uh, watching uh, all of this happen. Just to go back to your comments on other different uh, phases of reopening Hong Kong, a bit different, more sort of weeks and reopening and, and the differences. We've seen some really interesting notes on either vaccines being available in Hong Kong, come into your banking in Hong Kong. I mean, what is the position of Hong Kong as mainland China reopens? So roughly 35 to 40 percent of outbound tourism was Hong Kong as a destination. And that's unlikely to change in terms of its popularity. Then you have other countries uh, across Asia. So Thailand, Japan, for example, very, very popular. And then further afield. When you look at some of the key purchases, both goods and services, at the moment, when you see mainland um, citizens cross over into Hong Kong, it's, it's the vaccination. So the use of mRNA vaccinations, as well as things like um, not just jewelry, because you can still get gold jewelry in, in mainland China, but for example, insurance policies. So because the Hong Kong dollar is pegged to the US, just having that diversification of having a policy both in local RMB as well as Hong Kong dollar. And in fact, when we look at even insurance products themselves, life insurance products, they typically, it's a, it's a, it's a product that's being purchased face-to-face with your insurance agent. And that's why as a reopening names, insurance companies, the travel-related names have all done very, very well. But Pamela, I would preface this by they've done well, but now we have to be really disciplined about valuations and certainly not chase these names, given where multiples are. So give us a little bit of a sense of the relative trade. So so what is priced in at this point, as you say, or point two and, and the rally that we've seen? Um, give us a sense of sort of on a relative basis, what still looks cheap or, or actually are we moving off those levels? So for example, your classic reopening name. So if we look at the travel sector, inbound or, or domestic tourism revenues expected to rise to 70, 75% pre-COVID levels, outbound less so, 30 to 40%. And just like other countries, when they've reopened, prices have gone up. So let's say we have Trip.com, which is China's largest online travel company, both domestically as well as for international uh, travel, for example. It's rallied because of the reopening theme. But over this period, it's operated in a very tight budget because no one was traveling, even domestically. And so as we see this normalization occur, They'll have to increase their costs, whether it's staffing costs, to operate in a normalized environment. So therefore, you could see profitability expectations come in slightly lower. And that's what we're talking about. Yes, a lot of these names have rallied, seen some profit taking. But what are the names that still have those structural stories behind them, especially from an earnings perspective or market share perspective? Tell us a little bit about the story. I mean, for instance, you know, if we go to sort of the commodities, we go to the metals and mining, we go we go to sort of the story of what China will need a lot more of in terms of commodities. I mean, where does this play a role? How, how much is demand on this side of things? Is there is there a switch being flipped? It's very interesting because a contrarian way of looking at reopening and an area that people are tending not to focus on at this point is, in fact, oil. Aircrafts need oil, um, increased domestic demand, oil. So whilst oil could see some short-term volatility, medium to long-term, we think that structural story of demand is actually going to be a key beneficiary or, or underpin certain oil companies. It is interesting, though, that when we see higher commodities, that means that your input prices are likely to pick up, and, and we're factoring that in in terms of PPI. 
But again, China's different from, let's say, other economies in terms of this reopening story. One is that households are relatively wealthy. So we've spoken in the past about the savings rate being 30, 35%, $104 trillion worth of household assets. So that's sizable. And what's really sort of constrained retail sales has been sentiment related. So this, this sentiment pent up demand story is, is, you know, expected to be playing out or it's currently playing out or further played out. But then also, what about inflation? So many countries after the reopen have had inflationary pressures. China's inflation is benign. So even this week, we've seen CPI coming in at 1.8%. And even if this goes up to 2 2.5%, 3%, it's very much managed in terms of pork prices, vegetable prices, which are a key parts of the basket, and then even energy prices. So the government can debt certain prices, putting a cap for citizens, or so what I should say is that citizens don't overpay for electricity. And mm-hmm. so again, this dynamic is very interesting and different versus other countries. Very interesting and different. And as you say, there wasn't a, a massive amount of going into debt in the same way. I mean, there's easing happening now. It, was, it wasn't such a sharp in and out on that front. How, how different is the monetary story? Just remind us. So again, alongside the Bank of Japan, uh, the PBOC, so the People's Bank of China, is one of the only big or major central banks which is in different position to other central banks. Whilst they've been in easing mode, it hasn't been aggressive easing. easing. So monetary-wise, they can't aggressively ease if you have the Federal Reserve aggressively tightening. But also China's property concerns aren't going to be fixed by lower interest rates. It was more a sentiment issue regarding the quality of developers. And if Chinese citizens were indeed going to get the apartment, they put a down payment and were paying a mortgage for, are paying a mortgage for. Bearing that in mind, monetary policy, again, is likely to be tweaked. And we have seen some further easing measures announced within the property sector regarding both um, sales as well as developers themselves. But also from a fiscal side, we don't expect there to be huge infrastructure spending. Again, we're not seeing exports expect to be a key driver of growth. It's still that consumption story. And as we've been speaking about over the past, if property is no longer the backbone of the economy, moderate growth from a driver's perspective, from infrastructure spending and exports, what's going to replace property? And it's likely to be this continued development of capital markets and the rise of the domestic investor. So interesting. Okay, so so take us there. And we knew there was sort of a stepped, consistent march towards capital markets being open, being open further. This was pre-COVID. Take us there. How, how does this look now? So households are getting wealthier or have become wealthier with higher incomes really being a key feature or component in terms of, you know, whether it's common prosperity or just overall underpinning the growth of the middle class. So this wealth needs to find a home. And with property really being where you should live, not for investment purposes, this rules out property as an asset allocation choice. You can certainly put your money into a bank account and to a deposit account, but your yields are only X amount. So therefore, fixed income equities provides that differentiated asset class. And it's going to be for the longer term. So like a Canadian household would look at equities and fixed income. In fact, one of the the very popular areas of growth and demand from a product perspective with domestic Chinese investors is what we call fixed income plus. So it's usually a 70% allocation to fixed income, then 30% into other assets such as equities. And so that search for yield 
is becoming important to domestic investors. That's so interesting. By extension, when you say equities, does it does it tend to tack towards dividend producers or or not necessarily? Yeah, definitely. And so across a number of sectors, we're seeing some really attractive dividend yields and dividend payouts and and companies really wanting to see best practices from a global perspective, from a dividend policy point of view. And again, it, it shows us that from a corporate governance perspective, management teams want to reward minority shareholders. And so that benefits both domestic investors as well as foreign investors. We've heard headlines recently, um, more or you know, less listings in the U.S., the ADR um, sort of way for it to have U.S. investors or national investors invest in Chinese stocks. This has been a, an ongoing story, but it, it, we do seem to be hearing a little bit more about it now. Again, it's, it's thought that investors will, will invest via Hong Kong or Hong Kong will be the beneficiary. Is that still the story? It is. And what's interesting, again, is uh, Hong Kong's one of the top IPO markets. It's continuing to want to remain in the top three or even number one. Uh, the IPO market is likely to gain a lot of traction this year. So some names like ByteDance, um, obviously, and Financial's return in terms of its initial public offering is going to be not only important, but quite quite symbolic in terms yeah. of we've had this period almost like a reset and now the focus messaging wise is about this return to focusing on those areas of development, economically speaking. So and financial, it will come back. It won't certainly, we don't think, have the same kind of market cap valuation as what we saw before in terms of when it was going to come to market. But also when we look at it's playing in that space or it's a beneficiary of that financial services space. So you'll have other Companies such as China Merchants, NOAA, China Renaissance, really tapping into that growing area of domestic investment. But again, symbolically, it could be a catalyst again for that resumption towards that um, economic growth model. I think, again, what we really have to remember when it comes to China is China is, you know, has a, a controlled government juxtaposed with this entrepreneurial private sector. And hand in hand, it goes very, very well when given sort of that that balance. It's very interesting. Every country has its own setup and relationship between how, how that shakes out. I'm sure you get questions from investors, though, about, for instance, Ant Financial and, and investors were lined up for that. And then and then we sort of know the story didn't it didn't happen. There was government intervention. Those that are concerned about that, what what do you say? It feels like the regulatory reforms that we have seen have peaked. And even last week or two weeks ago, Tencent received uh, approval for six new gaming licenses. When we look at those reforms, those anti-competitive reforms, as, as we've spoken about in the past, a lot of it made sense. And China was almost catching up to where other countries are in terms of ensuring there are no key monopolies in certain industries. Now that we've seen, for example, the lending reforms being implemented, I'm just using Ant as an example, before it just owned too much of that space in terms of its market share. Now it's a more even playing field for other uh, institutions or players in that space. And, you know, that's really key in terms of having a regulatory framework that is understood for the companies and market participants. How is the country dealing with COVID? So in terms of what we're closely monitoring, you know, there's expectations that the cases have peaked in the urban cities, especially the big cities. And so what we're tracking is, for example, traffic numbers like subway traffic. 
And then also cross-checking the cases numbers from, you know, hospitalizations, et cetera. The Chinese government have alluded to the fact that they're not going to publish daily fatality results. It's going to be monthly. The risk is that because we've got Chinese New Year, the migration into rural areas um, could see an increase in infections. And the hospital system obviously isn't as robust in the rural side of the country versus the urban areas. So just something to monitor. But so far, there are a lot of cases, but we haven't seen, it's not like the uh, the Delta situation. Uh, so no new variants have appeared to come into China in a sizable manner. So it's it's very much the Omicron strain that are, that's being reported. What else has reset in China during this period where, where it's been closed, it's been in lockdown? Um, other things have been reset what how should investors look for those if, if there are opportunities so we have this, the common prosperity so we always have to remember that you know from a government perspective every chinese citizen should be able to access housing healthcare, and education so within the property sector from an investment perspective it's likely we will see consolidation that the state-owned enterprises will become bigger uh, that we will see some defaults of 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 private developers who have had issues with their balance sheet and the, the projects and construction will be taken over by the state-owned enterprises. So that sector is probably going to deliver lower returns, but more consistent returns, almost on par with, with the banking sector. We've got that, but having said that, you know, we have seen some further easing in terms of the debt levels for the developers, so an extension of, of repayments. Local government officials earlier this month have been told that if for example, their province has seen three consecutive months of declining sales. They can lower the mortgage rates for first home buyers. Talk about broker commissions being capped uh, for a while. So all these things really to stabilize the property sector. But then on the flip side, as I mentioned, the regulatory reforms, we've probably seen a peak to that. Reopening has now occurred. Uh, things like Belt Road, again, you're hearing about various projects offshore. Uh, even things like importing more materials from Australia after a certain sort of period of, of not doing so. Everything's sort of pointing back towards that focusing on growth or quality growth that sort of investors were a bit concerned about over the past few years, especially last year with the impact of, of the COVID or zero COVID policy. I did want to ask you about you know, when we speak about the strategy of, of growth, whether it's quality growth and, and the way you're talking about it, I mean, it, it is a bit different, isn't it, in China? Because interest rates in much of the world were basically at zero, which which is certainly a big part of the so-called growth story. Um, I wonder how, how it's more balanced in some ways between sort of a value slash growth strategy with uh, looking at Chinese stocks right now. Is, is there a way to, to think about it in those terms or is there a better way to think about that? It's not as clean cut anymore because a lot of those typical growth names all of a sudden became value names last year and are subsequently rallying because they're almost perceived to be proxies to China. So, it, you know, again, in this environment, valuation discipline is key and, and really understanding whether the structural story behind these companies is sustainable despite this rally that we have seen. It also is interesting, though, I, you know, I think China isn't going to be as clear cut in terms of buying companies that play the consumption theme, you know, the big names that everyone used to own. I think in the future, China will be more about 
diversifying your your sort of whether it's your style so being value contrarian versus just pure growth or consensus you know even like small cap versus large cap additional tool use whether you can use you know derivatives or gearing etc so i think as the market itself develops you'll see not just a consensus way of achieving the returns which are based off economic growth and you know again that income story i think is so so important when it comes to china in terms of the rise of the domestic investor and that's why the extreme movements we saw post the con congress um late last year it really impacted the hong kong market versus you didn't see those extreme movements in the mainland stock market and so i think again we saw extreme bearishness now we're sort of going towards extreme you know euphoric flows uh, over the medium term, it's probably going to be somewhere in the middle. This first quarter could be a little bit more volatile as we see cases um, increase, but earnings is probably across the board bottomed, and we're going to start seeing an uptick there. So interesting. Tell us a little bit about the team on the fund. We know that there was, uh, I think we spoke about it last time we spoke, maybe in October, um, about the changes on the team. Just tell us a little bit about the strategy, team players as well, team who's leading the fund. Yeah, so Nitin Bajaj, who um, is you know, very close as a, as a friend and colleague with Jing, is now the lead portfolio manager. He still continues to manage his regional small cap strategy uh, alongside an, an assistant PM on that. And then working on the China strategy with him is Alice or our Alice and, and uh, Karen. So as co-PMs and APMs for him. Now, when we saw the transition and even before the transition of lead PM, we were seeing an increase in those classic recovery names because like whether it was Alibaba or JD because they had well, the travel names because valuations were basically pricing in, you know, that the worst case scenario was going to happen in China, which we didn't think was the case. Now, we weren't calling the timing of the reopening. All we knew is that a reopening at some point had to happen, especially from that sentiment and economic drag that we had seen last year. And so those names, They've done incredibly well. So not only did the fund over the longer term benefit from the growth to value shift, but then being early on in those reopening names has has contributed a lot. So there's been a shift towards, as I said, that contrarian way of looking at reopening, i.e. oil. And then obviously that income cushion and that high dividend yield sort of search for names continues. The big change, though, is that Nissan as an investor doesn't particularly have high conviction or attractive conviction in life insurance companies because of the business model of life insurance companies. So, you know, since I've known him, he's never owned an insurance company, a life insurance company. So we have seen a reduction or an exit from the likes of China Life. And he's building up, you know, or not completely building up, still underweight uh, financials, but gravitating or shifting towards those financial services names that, again, are likely to benefit from this continued rise of the domestic investor base. It just takes us back to consumption a little bit. So it is, I'm always so fascinated what, what people gravitate towards. And as you said, there are classic reopenings. We know we know the travel theme for sure. And you mentioned some things in Hong Kong. What, what else on the domestic, perhaps brand side of things? So the local brands, uh, are definitely increasing their market share. That underlying premiumization theme within consumption across all pricing points, it doesn't just have to be higher end prices or products and services. It could be even things like consumer staples. 
And so we're seeing that come through. So that consumption thing, whilst we did see a definite decline in retail sales, that encouragement towards sentiment is definitely likely to underpin all facets of the consumer areas. And in fact, over the, the last two weekends, when we did see the opening up, our analysts sent through pictures just of like a jewelry fair. And it was certainly very, very busy. And that's just the beginning of what we're expecting to see. And again, households have the cash available. It's not like they're using these new purchases using credit cards. So debt isn't building up. When you hear um, global asset allocators, I'm sure you've been speaking with lots and lots of people in your travels, speak about the opportunities for EM in the year to come. Are, are they talking about China? Yes, now they are. So historically, we've seen quite an interesting pair trade between India and China. So as people haven't liked China, a lot of flows have gone into India. And that trade has been unwinding, in fact, for the past probably two months now, even before the official reopening messaging came through. So we're probably about 30 to 40% of the way in terms of this rotation. It's a bit like value growth, growth value, and probably another two months for it to unwind. India's still got some you know, very attractive opportunities and an attractive growth trajectory in itself. But because valuations and the attention hasn't been on China or has been on China in potentially um, a pessimistic manner, you're now seeing a lot more almost kind of becoming the, the market darling again. And that's why it's a caveat of not chasing the market and really ensuring that the underlying names or companies have that earning stability and visibility. Any thoughts on why the policy did change so quickly on COVID? I mean, I guess no one really knows, but do you know? No one really knows. I mean, there's speculation that potentially the virus couldn't be contained, um, that the data was showing that there were cases, the cases were of, of the Omicron variant. So, you know, at some point, sentiment-wise, it had to be lifted and economically, um, we, the country or, or the you know, China wasn't seeing as attractive economic growth, so something had to be done. The sudden pivot, though, that was a bit of a surprise because all indications were that, as I mentioned earlier, it was going to be more tweaking like we did see in Hong Kong. But it just means that the peak of cases is going to approach us quicker and that the pent-up demand story is playing out faster than expected. feels like uh, have to sort of be careful how you think about it, but it, it does seem like there's great excitement ultimately to be found uh, with this with this huge step forward and, and second biggest economy in the world reopening. It does. But, um, you know, again, it's that not chasing uh, the idea, not being just consensus, being, you know, following consensus or the crowded trade. But it's it feels like it. Yeah, it does feel like a bit of a rejuvenation. And uh, we've seen the reset now. And it's a combination of, as I mentioned, you know, ensuring that common Prosperity policy is understood and maintained in conjunction with the focus on economic growth. And I think that is what the market is looking at favorably. Whilst there's still some question marks on transparency, especially relating to COVID data and the cases, it's that sort of shift in tone towards economic growth that I think people are feeling very positive about. It's great to see you. Thank you so much, Catherine, for joining us. Thanks, Pamela. Thanks for joining us. I'm Pamela Ritchie. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. 
And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity Mutual Funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.